Uh, I like to say Baba Awo, Chief Priest Baba Awo, Oloye, Ifawole, Ola Deji, Ifantade. He is Chief Priest uh, Ile Iseshe, Ola Deji, Inner Conscious Spiritual Center. And he's located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And he will also be joining us momentarily here live on screen in the broadcast. And, of course, I greet and meet each and every one of you individually and collectively. Chef Bougie, thank you so much for your consistent support, you and your beloved uh, Orisha. Welcome again, Sierra Raquel. I am so grateful for your continued uh, support and listenership and participation. Yes, you probably were right in my neighborhood, uh, Sierra. (laughs) And I am on the Google map. Uh, that's one of the reasons I have such a consistent uh, stream of people and tourists uh, at my door. I'm, I'm literally on the Google map uh, for voodoo, voodoo historian, voodoo culture and tradition. So, yes, please uh, plan to visit me on your next uh, adventure to this beloved city of New Orleans. Uh, and, of course, DP, I appreciate you. Yes. All is a blessing. I have some of the best Airbnbs. Not that I'm here to sell Airbnbs. I don't own any. I don't have any friends or family who own any. But I do know some very nice Airbnbs in my community in Treme, in the historic Treme. Uh, So make a note of that and jot that down for your visits. And, of course, those of you who are listening, I appreciate my visitors. I had a visitor from Texas yesterday. Uh, who came in, and, and we had a great time, powerful time, and, and so I'm grateful for you. I also went to see um, uh, DP. You can reach uh, uh, the beloved Denise Augustine at, uh, let me check her, um, let me check her email. Uh, let me check, let me check. Uh Give me a moment. I don't have it right in front of me. It may be on her website, but I believe her website is parked right now because of the pandemic. So I'll get it to you. Um, Her website is OurSacredStories.com. So it may still redirect you. Uh, If it doesn't, um, just email me, and and I'll definitely make sure that um, she gets your information and you all can communicate. Greetings, beloved Shamafia Rothschild. I certainly appreciate and love your support and listenership and participation. Greetings, beloved Anthony. Welcome so much for continuing to come and, and support. And, yes, I'm always available. Uh, I try to be available even on Sundays if I'm not booked uh, in Congo Square for Congo Square Preservation Society gathering in Congo Square um, almost every Sunday unless it's really unusual uh, weather or event, right around 3 o'clock, between 3 and 5. And I'm literally uh, footsteps from Congo Square, from Mahalia Jackson Theater, from Armstrong Park, from Treme Coffee House. Treme Coffee House is like my uh, my adopted second office. It's Treme Coffee House, uh, so I'm easy to find. Uh, and the beloved Mambo Marie. Mambo, Carmel, many of you are, are aware of or familiar with or have met Mambo uh, Marie. I actually went to see her yesterday. 
she touched my face. Um, she's doing well. All is a blessing. I'm grateful for everyone's participation and, and listenership. I find sometimes that um, when I don't necessarily have something to say and I get out of the way, <laughs> we tend to have some, some really eventful shows. Uh, some of my better shows have been when I when I woke up not knowing what I wanted to talk about. And indeed, there are <clears throat> many things that we can look at. You know, the uh, outcome of the uh, George Floyd case, we, ha- we have not discussed that. Uh, of course, the unfortunate uh, new incidents that have taken place um, since that, that we are now confronted with, with this continued battle, this continued war, I should say. Uh, the, the guilty verdict is just one, one win and one battle. But we are indeed at war. We are at war with racism. We are at war with white supremacy. We're at war with foolishness. We are at war with um, ourselves and our either willingness or inability to grow and evolve and, and understand that we share a planet, the only planet that we have to share right now, and that we've got to find a way to get along lest we wipe each other and our and ourselves um, out. So I'm grateful um, for you all, and I invite you to call in to turn on your webcams. Uh, greetings, Orisha beloved. Greetings, uh, JP Tarot. And of course, if you have questions, comments, requests, subject matter that you want to talk about and discuss, uh, just let us know. Pop that in the chat, and um, either my cousin or myself will be more than happy to respond. For about the last half century, historians of American slavery have sought to combat racist understandings of slave life and culture and illustrate the agency that slaves had, not just in their day-to-day lives, but also in affecting change within the broader system of Atlantic slavery. These acts range from excuing plantation work responsibilities to full-scale violent revolts, an aspect often conspicuously absent from studies of slave life and resistance is the influence of African religious practices. And I've always said that that exclusion, that ignoring of, that denial of African religious practices is really about denying our power and making sure that we accept a false reality that we don't have power, we don't have a God, we don't have a culture, we don't have a background, we don't have a lineage. Witchcraft, healing, and other types of magical practices were often implemented by slaves throughout the Americas. Historians have referred to these practices collectively as conjure. But we know that conjure is a, is a gumbo word of practices and traditions much like witchcraft is a gumbo word of many practices and traditions and does not speak directly to traditional African-based religious systems. The concept of conjure has worked as a framework for historians to understand the broad set of magical practices that were implemented by African-Americans in the Americas 
as these practices often sat outside of a fully understood conception of a religious worldview. Before the end of enslavement, African-American magical practices often functioned as a hodgepodge of practices of African origin that were refracted through the day-to-day lives of American slaves and the cultural context of the Euro-American society that they resided in. These practices were widespread and played an integral part in shaping the African slaves' worldview, and their use extended through the entirety of the history of American slavery. The historians who have examined these practices have emphasized their importance as tools for slaves to exercise personal agency and carve out a space of autonomy within the oppressive system of American shadow slavery. This is, however, disagreement among historians um, of American conjure as to the purposes and effects of their use. There is a disagreement. Some view conjure practices as a coping mechanism used to mitigate the physical and emotional effects of the slave labor system, while others have seen them as a means of resistance to their enslavers and a direct attack on the slave system itself. Conjure needs to be viewed in its variety of contexts and forms in order to illuminate the broader effect that it had on the system of Atlantic slavery. It cannot be viewed without its broader Atlantic context and as a relic of African culture and religion. Conjure and other forms of slave resistance got their power from the context of Atlantic slavery, and as such, understandings of their importance must integrate the specific practices of slaves, white reaction to them, and their impact on the wider society. I've been teaching for years that there was a form of practice that existed prior to the Middle Passage that we don't have an understanding of. Um, And and I dare say maybe even uh, native-born West Africans may not have a full understanding of those practices, those traditions, what that looked like before this great uh, missionary uh, colonizing um, adventure. So, um, so certain commonalities work to preserve some religious and magical practices through the context that these people found themselves in shape the development of a new creolized African-American culture here in Louisiana. And as historian of American conjure, Jeffrey Anderson observed, the roots of conjure extend deep into sub-Saharan Africa, where magic has long been a feature of everyday life throughout most of the region. Furthermore, the clustering and shaking up of different African ethnic groups led to distinct regional systems of folk magic. Therefore, the practices that emerged were a product of African beliefs and colonial context. The spiritual hierarchy of American conjure came from Africa, but it was adapted to the needs of the American context. 
African conjure practices were used in ways that underlined the basic humanity of slaves, which in turn challenged the logics of the slave labor system that attempted to keep them as shadow property. And so I'm most certainly sure that, you know, though there are certain behaviors that we see uh, in humanity, no matter where we are, you know, necessarily on the planet, but I've always taught and believed that there was a uh, dramatic shift in how we applied and used these systems um, post-enslavement, uh, post-mental passage, uh, ideas of, of, re- of revenge, ideas of rebellion, uh, the, the sabotaging of not just the labor, but indeed the oppressors themselves, brought in a, a, a dramatic shift in energy in terms of how we use and apply these systems. And for, for Louisiana particularly, when we think about Marie Laveau, uh, Dr. John Montanay, sort of the introduction of voodoo as entertainment um, into the practice, we also saw the white community and the outside community then adapting hoodoo and coming into the practice. And then we saw a dramatic increase in love spells, luck spells, help me win the lottery, help me win this this gambling, you know, endeavor. Uh, and of course, revenge, help me seek revenge on my enemy, help me seek revenge on, on, on those who have done me, done me wrong, and, and forms of um, manipulative magic that did not exist prior to uh, the uh, Middle Passage. Um, cousin, I'm going to let you come on in because I want to kind of keep up with the chat. Okay. Great. Good evening to everybody. I hope everybody is doing well today. And uh, so I look forward to, to the discussion. I think it's an interesting discussion when we talk about conjuring and, and, and all the magic and all the things because we know that through the aspects of the slavery, we had people coming from different places throughout West Africa and even other areas other than West Africa, too. So within those places and the different traditions that were done and specific to those areas, then as time went by here and our ancestors realized that we can no longer be in conflict with each other, that there's a greater conflict that we have with a common enemy, then the the... the the magic or the conjure or the, the spiritual practices of each and every one of these areas then have to sometimes amalgamate to come together in order for there to be an even stronger spiritual practice to be manifested. So when we look at the possibility of some who came here who might have been elders who brought the traditions over there with a more fuller realm of of being able to bring all of the the uh, all of the rituals with them, maybe there was a lot of young ones who started learning but didn't have all of the the rituals uh, memorized or or whatever, and, and had to then come over here and realize we had to bring these things together to formulate even here in in, in America. I would say an African-American perspective of spiritual 
spiritual traditions and practices. And on top of that, the Native Americans that were already here already had forms of spirituality and practices that they had. And when you add that to the mix of what we brought over, then to bring all of those together formulated, I believe, a, a more diverse perspective of the spiritual practices, traditions, and being able to bring together those rituals. There might have been, and, and I don't know too much about Hebrew and, and the Hebrew, but let's just put into place or put into thought that if we combined the Native American things, the West African, and some of the different communities, we would then have a, an amalgamation that would bring a, still a very significant spiritual power that would then be able to, to uh, manifest for each and every one who, who practiced it. I love learning about the Voodoo and the Voodoo uh, of Louisiana. There's a significant power that goes, that is, that is within it. And, and so when I'm learning, as I'm learning more about my cousin's practice and, and you know, even Mama Denise and, and everybody's practice, it's very interesting to me because even for Pop, we do realize that living here in America, perspective in how we might look at things and view, even in doing readings, mm-hmm. we are bringing a different view and a different perspective, a different standpoint into how we practice. So therefore, it begins to take on an African-American, an African-American view in some ways. Of course, keeping the foundation and the base as pure as possible, but as African-Americans and our view and our experiences, our personal experiences as African-American community, then we have to, to, even in our practice, look at Cuba. Cuba had to then bring in their natural resources. They didn't have all the resources of, of uh, Africa. They had to then see what fits here, what can be used here instead of what's out there. And then they developed a very palpable practice, a very strong and powerful spiritual practice and tradition. And for me, those who had to com- that combined with the Christianity, then you had, of course, you know, of course, Lukumi and Santeria, Kondoble, all of those aspects, each one of them very powerful in their own sense. That's right. Before enslaved Africans made their trip across the Middle Passage, they had often already been forced into a process of creolization, where the diversity of African ethnic cultures were adapted to the Christianity of coastal European slave traders and conformed to the context of enslavement. This involved not only the mixing of the African ethnicities that populated West Central Africa and comprised the mass of the slaves gathered by traders on the African coast, but also adaptations of certain Christian religious beliefs. According to Ira Berlin, African slave traders also often converted to Christianity in order to facilitate trade with Europeans. And European missionaries attempted often successfully to convert Africans. 
The Royal House of Congo, for instance, converted to Christianity. And through Portuguese influence, Catholicism in various synchronistic forms infiltrated the posts along the Angolan coast. As John Thornton has argued of the Christianization of the Congo, Christianity was able to absorb several elements of Congolese religious practice. Congolese churches invoked evil spirits being known as the loco, a word that roughly translated to a regional word for which. Salt, a substance used by the Congolese to rid a patient of a witch curse, was also incorporated into baptism rituals. These practices helped from a form a bridge between Congolese and Christian ideas of evil and provided remedies to defend against it. The absorption of African witchcraft beliefs was also reflected in sermons. Thornton describes one sermon in which an African practitioner uh, in, in which African practitioner techniques were incorporated into the Christian allegory. This sermon described a woman who, during confession, had scorpions come up from her stomach and out of her mouth when she failed to confess her sins fully. A bigger scorpion appeared in her mouth, and all the escaped scorpions returned to her stomach, causing her to die. This Thornton argues, reflected the infestation of various insects and animals. This sermon illustrates the way in which African religious belief was already being adapted to European culture and how they facilitated the transfer of African magical belief to a new creolized religious belief that will follow these people across the Atlantic and into the American slave communities. Enslaved Africans on the coast also used their understanding of traditional practices and witchcraft to interpret their experiences within the slave trade. Thornton quotes a Congolese slave who described the fears that his fellow slaves had in crossing the Atlantic in slave ships. The slave explained that when they left Africa, they thought the whites had brought them to kill them and to make the flags for their ships from their skin or their remains. Many slaves thought that the slave traders were cannibals and that they were destined to be eaten. Others thought that they would be crushed to make oil or ground to make gunpowder. The fear was so real that it drove some of the human cargo to jump into the sea. This fear of cannibalism was part of a broader mutual understanding of witchcraft. Its relation to cannibalism and the exploitative nature of the slave trade. I'm going to say that again. This fear of cannibalism was part of a broader mutual understanding of witchcraft, cannibalism, and its relationship to cannibalism and the exploitative nature of the slave trade. Now, what's communion? I digress. In African culture, generally, witches were defined as selfish in nature. That's why I keep telling you all that this concept of witch and witchcraft that we have embraced uh, in sort of this modern culture has no reflection on sort of its authentic understanding and, and demonstration from a 
uh, West African context. From an African cultural perspective, witches were defined as selfish and self-made in nature, seeking to exploit their fellow Africans both socially and economically. This was reflected in the common belief that witches were cannibals. This is why, Thornton argues, beliefs that linked slavery to cannibalism and witchcraft were already circulating among slaves who had just arrived in America. So this idea that African tradition somehow became demonized and and turned into witchcraft after we got here is not entirely true. It has a, a solid foundation and basis in West Africa and in that slave culture in West Africa that then was exported here uh, uh, to the Americas. Africans used their religious worldview to interpret the world around them, and the idea of witches and witchcraft was central to the worldview. While some invoked cannibalism to comprehend the experience of the Middle Passage, others used magic to fight back. Diana Payton highlights one trader who claimed that some men's slaves had found means to poison the water on the slave ship in an effort to overpower the traders. He claimed they did so by putting enchanted talismans into the water cask. It is often difficult to pinpoint where specific cultural practices within African-American culture came from and how to view these cultures as a product of African influence as well as the experience of the Middle Passage. The processes of Atlantic slavery helped to blotch out many practices. But by finding commonalities between these very diverse groups of people and how they use these commonalities to form new religious and cultural practices in America, one can work to figure out how the context of slavery helped to create these new practices. While many of the Africans forced across the Atlantic shared some common religious and cultural beliefs, historians have debated the homogeneity of these people, and some emphasize the creation of new ideas through the process of enslavement. Philip Morgan rejects any generalization about the beliefs of the diverse range of Africans brought to America, but I'm sorry, be that as it may, he concludes that there were shared basic assumptions that were important to the spiritual worldview of enslaved Africans. According to Morgan, there was no division between the secular and spiritual among West Central African religions, a trait that would set them apart from European colonists. Similarly, or similarly, Berlin emphasizes the lack of any kind of common African identity, arguing these were different ethnic groups, different families, different lineages with different cultural and spiritual beliefs. Um, And I've talked about that in in previous shows um, when I say that we as African-Americans sort of have a, 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 and I want to be careful, I know I got Ados listening to me and I got Black Lives Matter listening to me, uh, but we tend to have a very tunnel vision-like scope 
of race, it's black or white, which removes ethnicity. Um, we have a very tunnel vision scope about how we view our experience through that prism of, of enslavement versus people of color or black people from the diverse regions from where we can be found um, on the planet. And sometimes it leads to misunderstanding between us and Africans, between us and Jamaicans, between us and, and Brazilians. And of course, the massa and the oppressor has always exploited our differences to sort of keep us apart. Uh, and, and, and so it's definitely up to us to look at what's similar about us, what ties us together as, as practitioners. Um, I've said on the show before, because on one of my, my main goals is to create a temple, is to build a temple to ATR, uh, an ancestral center, where we could all go, whether we be Airway, whether we be Igbo, whether we be Yoruba, but where that would be acknowledged in, in a safe space. Yeah, I think it's important. I think also we just have to also realize, yeah, you know, when I go back to what you were talking about, how a lot of the influence went into the church, it's very, it, it's, it's, I don't think people sometimes understand just how much influence that African traditions have been involved. When I look at uh, the, the church and I look at some of what we have done in the, in the uh, holiness movement, the holiness movement by itself has so much of what it is that we do uh, in different aspects. When we look at the holiness church, we look at a time, yes, prayer is the, the overall uh, thing, but in the way that we worship in the way that we celebrate God, in the way that we might catch what they call the Holy Ghost, and we're, we're speaking in tongues, and we're dancing in spirit. All of those things in taking possession manifested from our, our ancestors and, and our DNA. So the holiness, the, the church, holds so much, so much of what it is that our ancestors did in the, the celebration and the honoring of God, even in what we talk about when we have call and response. Mm-hmm. The call and response is also part of the tradition. The way that the pastors are preaching is very much that as well, because they then are telling story. They're like Gria. They tell stories. And then as they're telling the story, of course, they're preaching as they're doing it. But many times you hear them and you get captivated by them telling their story. And then we don't realize that that's part of our tradition and culture as well. So inside of that, we, we fail to sometimes see how significant even in that we are following our tradition. I also say that sometimes the Christians forget that in essence they're following ancestral practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Every single time 
that they 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 went forth the names of these the the uh, prophets. They are speaking into existence the memory of that ancestor and the contribution that the ancestor has made. I believe. So, uh, I was going to say I believe Christianity would not have survived in the new world without ATR, mm-hmm. without those very elements that you just suggested that we brought to that religious ceremony, and they have been so well amalgamated that we assume some things to be European that are African, and we assume some things to be African that are that are European uh, when, we, when we look at religion and, and spiritual practice. Yeah, and especially in the way of worship, just in the way of worship by itself, in the way that we worship in comparison to the way that they worship. They have a very rigid and standard way in some of the uh, denominations of, of the way that they go about their service. This has to be before this. I guess that would be Methodist in their methodology and, and, and how they one to the other to the other. And then... Even in our AME Zion, the African Methodist Episcopalian, it's not as rigid, although they still have some rigidity. Mm-hmm. But then you go into Pentecostal, of course, and things spring up, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, a great deal in, in how the worship service goes. So I agree with you. There's a significant influence and a significant amalgamation and intertwining of all of that coming together, but yet. Some, we have to be able to also have that in our thought. And many times, those that are in very deep Christianity do not have the openness of thought and mind to see that. And, and so they define what is different as something that is evil and something that is not of God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Uh, and I invite you all to participate now. I mean, me and my cousin can hold down a show, but we would certainly appreciate your questions, comments, requests, um, and participation uh, with us in the show. Uh, let me go back to my notes here. Uh, the immigrant experience, though, did not shape the lives of these people, but the process of cultural transfusion to the Americas was complex and multifaceted, and could not be described as assimilation, if for no other reason than that the world around them was so diverse and was changing so rapidly that no single idea to which to assimilate existed. Gwendolyn Hall argues that despite some cultural clustering of Africans in the Americas, for instance, the large concentration of of Yoruba in Cuba or, or in Brazil, African cultures were not preserved in their original form. They were creolized over time and developed into distinct regional ways. And this is why there's a distinct regional difference between what is going on in Haiti, what is going on in Cuba, what is going on in Puerto Rico, what might be going on in Honduras with the Guranifa or in Panama or, or in Brazil and indeed here in Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, Alabama, et cetera. 
that there are regional nuances. I think sometimes, uh, uh, particularly with Lukumi, Ifa, even Voodoo sometimes, we, we call that lineage because there is lineage that is indeed biological. Father begets son, beget grandson, etc. But there's also lineage by way of practice, by way something is done and repeated culturally, ethnically, regionally in, in any particular uh, place on earth. So this highlights the difficulty historians have in tracing the spread and adaptation of African cultural beliefs as the Mm -hmm. process of creolization in the Americas varied greatly over time and place, often making it difficult to place the origins of early African-American belief systems. Mm -hmm. Historians have also described the process by which the experience of slavery and the slave trade led to a common identity as African-Americans. Stephanie Smallwood argues that the harrowing experience of the Middle Passage helped create a common identity for enslaved Africans and facilitated the, trans- and facilitated the transfer of aspects of African culture that were common among varied groups. Africans created communities on these ships and in the Americas as a way to solve the social problem of dispossession. The mm-hmm. cultures they produce do not reflect the simple transfer and continuation of Africa in the Americas, she explains, but rather reflect the elaboration of specific cultural content and its transformation to meet the particular needs of slave life in the Atlantic system. This process operated as a way to solve the problems of managing death, creating social networks, and kinship relationships, addressing the imbalance of power between slaves and masters, and staking a claim of identity in the face of claims to ownership. This was a necessary process that African slaves implemented in order to remain recognizably human in a system that did not recognize their humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, do I have a question or a comment before I go on? Uh, my phone lines are open at area code 845-277-9143. And, of course, you can follow the uh, link in that's scrolling at the bottom of the screen and join us um, live on camera here. I'm also uh, pasting it again into the into the chat if it's easier for you to copy in and paste it um, from there. So according to historian of American slavery, Peter Colchin, this process of African-American identity construction continued in the Americas as European racial uh, categorization and subjugation worked to give African-Americans a more salient identity than that of any of any particular African nationality. But this is not to say that they had no common African cultural understanding. As Colchin explains, these enslaved Africans came from a pre-modern world that lacked the distinction between natural and supernatural, secular and sacred, a world in which the individual lived in close relationship with ancestors, spirits, gods, and nature, 
Their common spiritual worldview was one in which priests and witch doctors cured illnesses and, and injured enemies. African magical practices served as one of the crucial elements that tied African-American culture together as folk magic, charms, love potions easily survived the passage from Africa to America, and every large plantation was likely to have a conjurer. This is true even as enslaved Africans began to adapt to the religion of their enslavers. As Robin Blackburn observed, Africa was a polyglot continent, P-O-L-Y-G-L-O-T, polyglot continent, where many different people, am I saying that right? Where many different peoples lived side by side and with frequently, and with frequently shifting frontiers. This allowed African culture in the Americas a certain pluralism and flexibility as well as willingness to try out or adapt new customs and make the best of things. Blackburn compares this adaptability to the experience of early European indentured servants who struggled to create meaning and community in the new world. In contrast, African slaves showed greater adaptability to adapt to new surroundings, particularly, no doubt, out of necessity, but perhaps also partly because of a certain cultural suppleness seen in the development of new languages, religions, and skills. Growing Christian beliefs among enslaved Africans had to compete for attention with a host of pre-Christian religious beliefs that persisted for centuries as slaves commonly resorted to potions, concoctions, charms, and rituals to ward off evil, cure sickness, harm enemies, and produce uh, amorous behavior. So this is not new to us. This is not new to modern culture. This is not new to the Internet. Uh, This is not new to Orisha romance or or, or the obsession with with black witchery, but it's indeed always been sort of an extension of our nature uh, of, of adaptability. So one of the greatest factors in the preservation of African religious practices in the Americas was, ironically, the prevalence of Christianity. And that's why I say Christianity would not have survived the New World without us. African religion provided particularly malleable and compatible with the Christian spiritual worldview. This compatibility is a factor heightened by a variety of historians in explaining the long-standing presence of various African religious practices and cultural influence. Berlin points out that conversion to Christianity did not mean that Africans had to sacrifice their own deities. Instead, they incorporated Christianity into their beliefs in order to serve their own needs and gave Jesus a place in their spiritual pantheon. As new waves of enslaved Africans made their way to the American shores, the Christianity of the more creolized early arrivals gave way to more Africanized religious practice. The religious practices of the new arrivals, Berlin argues, were dismissed as idolatry and devil worship by the established clergy. Eugene Genovese 
in his study of the lives of African-American slaves, also highlights the compatibility of West Central African religious belief with Christianity. During my um, research into my DNA, uh, Ancestry.com, I found a link with my mother's side of the family, uh, cousin, to the Fonte, F-A-N-T-E in West Africa, the Fonte. And, and in studying them, it was revealed to me through documentation that the Fonte were probably the very first West African ethnic group that sort of embraced Christianity. And, 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 and in that thinking, it, it really made sense to me why people like my mother and, and many others adhere so strongly to that tradition, mm-hmm. to that practice. And even at a deeper level or even a subconscious level, they could very well be checking into that Africanized spirituality that still exists in those traditions, and particularly in uh, holiness, Pentecostal, sanctified, mm-hmm. apostolic, you know, mm-hmm. more demonstrative um, mm-hmm. traditions. Uh, so I think there's some commonality there with this information. Absolutely. Especially, like, even in dealing with how they, they, they uh, kind of rebirth you with the, with the uh, baptism, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's not like bap- it's not like a similar process, not exactly the same process is utilized in in African tradition. We still are doing cleansing. We're still washing. We can wash away my sins, right? So we we utilize the omiero with the herbs to wash away. And then as you go through the process of the ritual and you come out on the other side of the ritual, you've been reborn as a new person. Now, not so much. Ishefai begins that process. Ishefai, one hand of the five, begins that process. But Tefa, when you go through full initiation, uh, then you go through the full process to be reborn as a new person. So the process, the, the perspective, the perspective of thought is the same. We have to go through this particular thing in order to come out, be thinking new, acting new, all of those, all of those things. Right? So because maybe a lot of those that follow Christianity very deeply has never experienced African spiritual practices, African traditional religions, they have no idea just how close they are doing some of these things. And so because of it, it still leads them into the mindset that the only way to God is through Jesus. Um, there's so much going on in the chat. Um, Beast Poet, I don't know how to respond because you've made some strong assumptions. Uh, you assume that I'm intellectually rigid, uh, rigorous about my approach to spirituality. So, so I don't quite get that. Um, and I'm sure my mother and many uh, religious folk in my life would definitely not agree with that. <laughs> the second part is um, 
the relationship between academia and spirituality, uh, the pot- potentials and pitfalls. Um, there's always going to be a pitfall when man gets involved, uh, always, and particularly if we're speaking of academia. Uh, and this is something that I've said on the show numerous times, maybe even before you became a listener. Um, pay attention to who wrote the book. That, that's a very common thing in, in my community. I read the book. I've read a dozen books. But who are the authors of the book? What is their story? What are they offering you? What are they teaching? What are they sharing about the particular practice that they've written about that ties to them personally and intimately. So, for example, in the, in, in, in the 19, well, in the 1800s, 1700s, it was all witchcraft. It was all demonology based on the Christian or Christianized author who was writing the document, who was observing and studying the culture. As we move forward, um, academia is changing along with us. There are many more of us who actually are in academia. I have a great relationship with Xavier University here in New Orleans. I've done a voodoo symposium at Xavier. Uh, I just recently, um, well, still am being featured at the Louisiana State Museum in Jackson Square, the Presbyterian, all because of the the, the favor of, of Xavier University. So when we are involved in the academia, <laughs> when we are involved in academia, then we, then we see a much more positive uh, potentiality for how that information is being gathered and then shared and or disseminated. Now, and it's not specific to race. Now, now I have a black brother here in New Orleans. Uh, almost everything he writes, you know, about, about voodoo is to bring it down, is to discredit it. Uh, he did one piece, and I can't think of the title right now, but some of you in the room probably have read the book, uh, where he really puts all the responsibility on Marie Laveau for commercializing voodoo, bringing entertainment to voodoo, and, and in a word, demonizing, if you will, uh, the practice. And, and that's not entirely true either. Uh, there were indeed performers like Dr. John Montanay, who was not only her contemporary, but preceded her uh, in terms of performance, you know, biting the heads off snakes and, and doing other things for the entertainment of, of, of global and white audiences. Um, so that is not entirely uh, fair to put all the responsibility on Marie Laveau. Uh, some even say because of what's said about her ability to interact outside of the black community, that we should also somehow judge her for that. Uh, and, and, and it suggested that she introduced voodoo, which then became hoodoo, uh, to the white community. When we use hoodoo today, it is not in the same context as Marie Laveau's generation. In Marie Laveau's generation, it was all voodoo, unless you were being discredited. So if you were white or even black, and people felt that you was playing around with the tradition, you were practicing hoodoo. Um, and, and that's a great segue into another question in the chat. Um, why hoodoo, uh, Guinevere Reed, with the native peoples like the Arawak, Africans, Afro-Caribbean, 
Latins in Central and South America were able to maintain their ATR lineages and practices. However, why is Hoodoo not recognized as ATR? Mm-hmm. Um, and me and my cousin might have different answers for that. I, I want to first say something that my regular listeners have heard me say, that southern border is, is the deciding factor. South of the border, the Latin world, the Hispanic world, there was an arrangement with the Catholic mm-hmm. Church. And if everyone converted to Catholicism, we'll let you do your Orisha on your time off without a whole lot of problem. We weren't allowed to do that. That was nowhere in the plan. And you could be killed, lynched, mutilated, you know, if we gathered, if we drummed, if we looked like we were invoking some kind of spirit. And there was a time we weren't even allowed to invoke God, uh, if, if you all aren't aware of that. God, Jesus, we weren't even allowed to read the Bible. So our traditions had to go underground. We're forced to go underground. And in doing that, some of the amalgamation that my cousin talked about, some of the uh, synchronizing that, I, that I've shared from the document took place. And so now hoodoo has become sort of a, a, a lineage, a path uh, unto itself. Now, people are still fighting culturally over hoodoo. On the one hand, you have the, the witches, the pagans, the global audience that feels like it belongs to all of us. We can all use that. We can all protect in that. And, of course, in that, other practices, witchcraft, other spell work got mixed into that. Uh, then there's the community, the ATR community, that understands the dynamics of hoodoo and its origins. And, indeed, there are origins of hoodoo that can be, you know, traced back to West Africa. Even um, references to the word itself and how the, how the name is being used uh, can be traced back to sort of indigenous practice. So my answer is um, uh, it's, it's a part of ATR depending on who you ask, depending on who you talk to. Did you have a response? Um, my answer is relatively easy. I agree with everything that my cousin said, but if he was birthed here, then it's African-American. That's it. You know, if it's birthed here, with, with just like us as sort of African-American people, we have African blood that runs through our veins, but we were born here, so we would be considered African-Americans. So traditions that are born here, African-American. Let me use this as an example. Jazz, gospel music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jazz was born here. No matter where it's played, all over the world, it was born here in America. Gospel music, no matter where it's played, was born here in America. So therefore, it's American, right? African-American, American, whatever you want to call it. Many of the denominations of Christianity was born here. So it has both the roots of Europe or Africa or wherever, but it was born here. So I look at Ubu, even in the amalgamation, as African American. It's born here and has different things that were developed here in order to accentuate it 
and to lift it up and grow it into where it is at this point in time. I believe the Orisha, the Loa, the Abasar, the spirits are so powerful and so conscious. Um, some might say they, they, they chose to move and grow and evolve and continue the lineage into, the, into a new world, particularly being able to see into the future, into a time when we indeed might wake up and, and come out of these, these oppressive houses and, and return to our roots. And so I, I believe that, um, you know, you can't, you, you might have been able to enslave us, but you couldn't enslave Orisha. You, you couldn't enslave Loa. And, and there was a, a spiritual choice to grow here, to, to evolve here, to, to expand here. And I see a day when uh, there will be more of us That's acknowledging correct. ATR than church. I will say this also as well. Being uh, having the opportunity to go over there and to sit down with many elders and to see from from my allure, from Kabiyasi, from from Oba Efekdeni, from his experiences and being told by these elders over there that it had to come over here and expand, grow, and the responsibility that we had to help that to happen. Those here, there are significantly uh, knowledgeable people in our traditions here in America now that we can do much of the work here in America. And we have to now grow it here in order for it to, for people to, to experience it, to, to, you know, to grow into it here as well. You know, going over there and, uh, you know, Kabiyase in his travels and his elders said specifically to him, sometimes you're going to have to uh, maybe use something else instead of what we use here. Because out there, you might not just have that root or that, that, uh, that, that type of um, plant or whatever the case might be. So... You know, we have to then put an American approach to some things in utilizing what we have available here. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we can't order everything from over there. You know, you got to go through the process in, in, in the mail. And, and so, therefore, we have to then find what can be used here instead of there. Right? So, again... It still becomes African American, and I'll say that within the fact that when when the tradition was taken into Cuba, the Cubans didn't have everything that Nigeria had, and so they had to find what they could use in place of in certain things. And in that, through all of these years, Lukumi has developed into a very strong and powerful practice. So therefore, the same thing with Egypt. You get stuff from Yoruba, you get stuff from the Akan, you get stuff from over here in this area, you get stuff from the, from the native people here, you get stuff that maybe came in from different other areas, and therefore, what do you have? 
you have an amalgamation that you bring together and through trial and error over the many, many years, you've now seen the power of what you're doing. And now through that experience, you can then say to somebody else, all right, this is the problem. This is how we have to operate in order to break this and break that and bring good energy back into your situation. And then, I do. And there's also that evolution of, of problems, of diseases, of, right. of, of conditions that we had to confront in the new world, which absolutely required new applications. That's right. And so that knowledge, uh, for instance, that we gained from indigenous uh, communities uh, about what's edible, about what's usable. Um, of course, there were things that we found um, that we were familiar with. I, I think people underestimate the amount of seeds uh, and, and, and organic matter that came with the West Africans that was sort of reseeded here um, in the West. But then there's, so, so that would create subsequent generations that would find things that they would absolutely recognize. But then that which they didn't recognize or were unfamiliar with, uh, we gained a certain degree of knowledge of that from the indigenous people in the new world. So we developed new applications, just like science, just like the pharmaceutical industry is always seeking to improve, make the better product, create a greater shortcut to some sort of healing or a miraculous recovery. And so we were forced to have to confront new spirits, new illnesses, new diseases, new circumstances for application. And so we had to evolve a unique lineage, regional lineage, based on where we are. Uh, before I forget, too, uh, you were talking about Omiero. Uh, and, yes, um, in the chat, we both use Omiero. Uh, we also do what's called Labe Tet in, in Voodoo. Uh, you talked about baptism, and, you know, you really can't come into the church without accepting God mm-hmm. and, and then being baptized. Well, you don't come into voodoo without Labe Tet. So there mm-hmm. are absolutely some, some distinct um, similarities uh, that we can't necessarily say started on the left or the right, but have sort of grown together in their usage and, and application um, in terms of spirit power the purpose, why we do it, what's supposed to be the, the outcome of why we do it. We trip often over the words because of the cultural diversity. We trip over words. We argue over practices. You know, it's done this way in, in, in West Cuba. It's done that way, you know, in, in, in another region of Cuba, you know, and, and people really get into some intense battles over that. Um, and we lose sight of what works, what heals, what produces, you know, a result as, a point, as opposed to arguing sort of over the semantics of mm-hmm. something that has really taken on a new life in the new world. Uh, mm-hmm. Destiny, Faith, I answered your question. So I'm, I'm not understanding. Traditional African-based religious system. Uh, Guinevere Reed says hoodoo is an amalgamation of African, Native American, Gypsy, and Celtic. So hoodoo should be recognized as a Gullah Geechee ATR, African traditional religion and work with what we had to survive. Um, Guinevere, I just don't want to disagree with you. 
However, <laughs> hoodoo came out of New Orleans and traveled upriver. It traveled with the Mississippi uh, uh, Delta. When we think about the Gullah Geechee, we think about what we call low country conjure. Now, you might say it's all, you know, low country conjure, hoodoo, it, it might be the same. It might even be similar. Uh, but historically, we've understood hoodoo to have come out of New Orleans uh, because there, there are references to it, uh, again, in the time of Marie Laveau and just a little bit before her, that then carry up the Mississippi River into Memphis, uh, St. Louis, uh, other regions, other regions that uh, interacted with, the, with, with what was once the superhighway, uh, which was the Mississippi River. So it, it carried not just supplies, it carried jazz into other parts of the country. It carried hoodoo into other parts of the country. It carried gospel into other parts of the country. So um, I agree with you, but, there, but hoodoo has its basics in uh, New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Uh, greetings, Mom. And he would be your cousin through, by marriage, not your nephew, but I get it. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you for being here, Mom. I appreciate you. Uh, yeah, the point is absolutely getting results. Is result-oriented. And particularly when we're being honest about it. You know, if you're suffering disease, illness, you don't need no illusionary fix. <laughs> no, no illusionary application. Uh, you want to be healed. You want to be well. You want to survive. Uh, particularly if we Staying in that context of enslavement, um, you weren't allowed to be sick. They might beat you to death if, if you were sick uh, under the guise that you were faking it, that you were trying to sabotage work, that you were trying to escape labor. So we weren't really allowed to be sick. Um, so we, we had to have healers and practitioners that really could do their job if we were really suffering from something. Uh, remember now, the oppressor couldn't feel our pain, couldn't feel our empathy, had no sympathy for it. You know, oh, witch girl, you just faking. Get in there and, you know, mop them floors. You know, so we had to have result-oriented work at that time. And as I suggested earlier in the show, I, I don't really think we had a whole lot of time for foolishness. That's not to say we didn't have our own life. You know, we dated and, 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 and partied. And, and had recreation when we could, you know, and, and ran off, you know, at night or, or on the weekend sometimes and disappeared. You know, some of these plantations were really big or massa would be away. And so they wouldn't necessarily know you were gone unless someone ratted you out, you know. So we indeed had, you know, a semblance of a life that we created, that we, we had to create. But we really didn't have a lot of space for some of the just foolishness that we see today promoted as ATR or, or, or promoted in social media as having some connection um, to the root of our tradition. And in my opinion, in my opinion, that's one of the reasons why they, they want to voodoo out of our hands, take hoodoo out of our hands, and make it witchcraft and make it paganism, again, so that it's everybody. And it don't belong to you guys anymore. Um, some people feel very racial when I when I say things like that. You know, jazz came out of our community, 
But, but we now say jazz is an American phenomenon. But what does American mean to you? When you say America, are you thinking about me and my cousin <laughs> and, and, and Billie Holiday? Uh, who, who is American to you? Uh, sometimes to, in today's context, American uh, is used as a white supremacist slur. You know, mm-hmm. keep America great again, you know. So when we say, oh, well, it's American tradition, Jazz. Oh, it's an American tradition, hoodoo. We're attempting to erase, tone down at the least, our involvement in the culture, our involvement in, in, these, in these practices and traditions. Mm-hmm. Come on now with y'all's questions, comments, and requests. Phone lines are available at 845-277-9143. Just remember to press the number one on your telephone keypad so that I can uh, unmute your mic. Okay, so West Africans generally believed in a supreme God who presided in some ultimate sense over human morality. But they also believed in a large body of specific gods. Genovese explains, and much as Catholics reach God by an appeal of the intercession of the saints or the Virgin Mary, Africans often reach their supreme God through appeals to a pantheon of lesser gods. Though in the South, the combination of hostile white power, small plantations, and farm units, and the early closing of the slave trade managed to snuff out most of the slaves' specific religious practices. The compatibility of these beliefs with Christianity allowed residues of these beliefs to persist at the same time that the development of unique Afro-Christian culture uh, relegated Christian slaves outside the norms of the white church. Uh, For example, um, foot washing, Mm -hmm. Terry services. Terry mean all night if if, if that word is too old for some of (laughs) y'all. A Terry service started at four in the evening and didn't end until eight the next morning. Uh, These are clear uh, and distinct um, traditions that would have found some compatibility with these Christian beliefs. Uh, but it would have allowed traditional African-based uh, practices to survive. And as I say all the time, that border makes a big difference in terms of how my cousins were treated in Brazil uh, and how we are treated here. I also say that geography, that ability to escape into the, to the mountains, to disappear uh, into the wilderness was not always an option um, in, in North America, again, allowing for, uh, you know, white supremacy uh, and slavery to sort of push our practices, our unique and individualistic practices underground. And when I think about Congo Square and our coming together in Congo Square historically, uh, no slaves were fed on Sundays in New Orleans because you didn't work. So everybody... Who, who needed to would have been present. 
no matter if you were fine, if you were a kind, if you were airway, if you were guy. And so our practices would have gone through a, an amalgamation within our own community, sort of a blending and emerging. For example, ancestral worship. We all understand ancestors. We all have ancestors. We all bring ancestors to Congo Square, both in the day of Marie Laveau and even today, where we all bring our separate and, and unique ancestors to Congo Square. But we also have ACR in Congo Square, Muslim in Congo Square, Rasta in Congo Square, Hebrew <clears throat> Israelite in Congo Square. And that is not unlike our um, undisturbed condition in West Africa, when we all would have had uh, very specific and diverse uh, ethnic groups, but also religious beliefs and connotations. We know that Nigeria is not all Muslim, it's not all Christian, and it's not all ATR. And we can say that about many, uh, if not all of the, the countries uh, in, in Africa, but particularly in West Africa. And when I meet West Africans, that's the first thing I ask, cousin, um, what's your religion? Mm-hmm. And can you tell me about the religion of your grandparents? And see, we I'll think... Tell you what, you know, one thing that people fail to realize, even if they're practicing Islam or they're practicing Christianity, they still many times practice the tradition of the ancestors. And many times you will find Christians and Muslims who are part of your initiations out there when you go to the initiations. So just because they are following uh, you know, you do have those those hardcore zealots who don't go and and they they have totally abandoned their ancestral practices. Mm-hmm. That's fine, but you do have the others that realize the significance of keeping the ancestral practices alive, even with them practicing Islam. And at times, in verses of Ifa, Ifa will tell somebody, uh, "You should be practicing." Uh, Christianity, or you should be practicing Islam. And conversely, it also says at times, you should make sure that you do not do this. You know, make sure you do not do that. So many times the verses of Ifa will also be telling you things about other traditions, things about other traditions. You know, a lot of times, and it's similar out here in America, you have a mosque right here, and you have a church right here. And there's never anything in conflict between the two. They go in, they practice their thing, and they come out and they go about their business. It's only some here that have this big problem. I, I don't associate with people who are Muslim. I don't associate with people who are Christian or whatever. And don't even know the definition to either one. Many people don't even know the definition of Islam. They don't know a definition of what a Muslim said or a Muslim is. Because if we did, then we would probably all fall under the big, grand definition of one who submits to do the will of God. We all submit to try to do the will of God within our life. And what is a Muslim? A Muslim is one who submits himself to do the will of God. So if you just look at the definition, I've heard Minister Farrakhan say that many times. Mm-hmm. From the definition of the word, 
we are all this. And people don't realize that as Muslims, they have to understand Christianity and Bible just as well as Christians. There's study that they have to do because it's the youngest of the three, Abrahamic faith. In our tradition, in fact, it's important that we understand from a universal perspective how these, these, these aspects work for us. We don't convert nobody. We don't look to convert anybody. But by the same token, we, don't, we also don't put down anybody because they choose to practice a different tradition. Right. That's right. That's right. Uh, me and my mother had the best relationship. I'm not trying to convert her to voodoo. She's no longer trying to reconvert me to Christianity. And yet, um, some of the best conversations, some of the deepest conversations I could ever have about bond material, airway material, EFA material, is with my mother. And, and she's looking at it, you know, completely from her Christianized viewpoint, but somehow we keep meeting up in the middle. And, and we seem to find the same meaning out of the same material. So um, some people are sort of put off by my demonstration, uh, particularly my clients. I often tell my clients, I, I'm not here to sort of convert you in, in, this, in this phone call or, or in this reading. And indeed, if you have a question, a subject matter, or a question that you want to examine, let's examine that. But for those who are seeking connection, who are seeking ancestors, who are seeking sort of a, a, a replacement for, or I shouldn't say replacement, or a different way of approaching spirit and want to do that through ATR, we have to be available for that. And, and there's no excuse for us to not be available for that in 2021. No generation behind us should say that they're confused about voodoo, ifa, lukumi, and what that is, and that they saw signs of something going on in their house, but no one explained to them. No one can really say that from this moment forward. So many historians of American slavery relegate African religious beliefs to the sidelines of development of African-American culture. Most synthesis on uh, most synthesis on the development of African American culture take on a teleological narrative, chronicling the conversion of African Americans to more traditional forms of Western Christianity and ignoring the contributions of African culture to African American understanding of Christianity and the spiritual world. This is a product of both synchronism of Christianity and African religious beliefs and the bias of white sources against African culture. According to historian David Murray, usually reliable sources such as the writing of Christian missionaries are less descriptive, I said this earlier, are less descriptive about the religious practices of African slaves than they are about other aspects of the life. Murray argues that this is perhaps because of the idea that Africans were blank slates to be written on or, be, or because anything other than full Christianity was dismissed as holy. Um, oh, wow. 
Meretricus, M-E-R-E-T-R-I-C-I-O-U-S, Meretricus, and not worth discussion. So many Christians found that they were either wicked or unimportant, uh, and, and therefore didn't document that, didn't study that in, in the missionary uh, following of, of black people throughout the world. African religious influence on the hysterical record fell victim in these instances to the mm-hmm. dichotomous white Christian view of the world in which the requirements of Christian orthodoxy bleach out the details of what is actually being encountered. So that the only thing that can be registered is paganism or full Christianity. Even Christian abolitionists, who generally had a more favorable view of the uh, capacities of enslaved Africans, thought that the African rituals that had traveled to America were not part of a, of a legitimate religion, so much as a set of superstitious practices. And for me personally, that's very disconcerting. Because I see that same energy today. ATR is not religion. Ifa is not a religion. Voodoo ain't religion. And it opens this doorway to not only superstitious practices, but this mixing of witchcraft and paganism and, and, and other indigenous practices around the world into something that just reflects some taste of ATR, but it's not ATR authentically. Um, at all. These biases have worked to mask the significant contribution of African religion to African American beliefs, especially in the uh, crucial initial period when African beliefs were being adapted to the context of American slavery. Even though Christian bias has worked to erase the importance of African belief systems to the development of American culture, the synchronizing of these beliefs with Christian piety worked to preserve them within an increasingly Christianized African-American culture. As Jeffrey Anderson has observed, witches in Europe often function in similar ways to African conjurers, and belief in witchcraft was common throughout white America. Belief in the Sabbath and the concept of witches packed with Satan reinforced existing African ideas about sorcery who often obtain their powers by deals with evil spirits. Further, European ideas about the Sabbath helped to preserve the African concept of witch society. The merging of these ideas, in fact, gave power to African magical practice in the Americas as they were given weight by white fears of their effectiveness. It also helped to preserve belief in conjure doctors who were tasked with curing the curses of witches. In the African religious worldview, misfortune was seen to be the product of witchcraft, and conjure doctors were seen as the only tool to keep balance in the society, an idea that reflected Christian ideals of good and evil, allowing this concept to persist as African slaves were increasingly Christianized. Additionally, charms, spells, and enchanted amulets were all prevalent in Christian and ideas of African witchcraft. Whites, however, 
often conflated these practices with malicious acts of European-style witchcraft. Diana Payton, in her study on the relationship of witchcraft to slave codes in the Caribbean, argues that the similarity of African and European witchcraft led to increased attacks on African religion and culture. Patton observes that both Africans and Europeans in America come from societies in which the hostile use of spiritual power played a significant role. Both Africans and Europeans believed that spirits influenced their day-to-day lives and that those spirits were controlled by individuals with appropriate specialist knowledge. Therefore, in both cultures, seeking protection against spiritual attacks was a necessary aspect of daily life and continues on until this day. Patton also observes that both of these groups thought that certain physical substances could be used to harm people. Europeans often translated the African terms for these types of magical substances as poisons. They conflated African magical substances with substances that provoke purely pharmacological reactions. Here, African religious practices were delegitimized and associated with criminal acts instead Mm -hmm. of religious ones. Mm -hmm. Uh, Neophyte Bokur, welcome, beloved, to the conversation. We certainly do appreciate you. Hello, everyone. Peace and blessings. Uh, Respect to my elders. This is a powerful one. Um, I keep coming back to Pitsuba. Um, if you, if anyone's interested in, in that story, it is a story of uh, the Salem witch trials. There was a young black woman. Uh, I believe in her description, her, the description of her tells me that she may have been a doula or midwife and a herbalist, amongst other things. Um, she was obviously an enslaved woman uh, in the earlier stages of, of slavery in this country, Salem, Massachusetts. She was called in to try to be a, a testimonial or witness to what was going on during those times, during the, during the witch hunts. And in order for her to survive, she had to go into that storytelling and just be captivating and kind of enamored the audience with a, a story that allowed her to be the only survival, uh, survivor of those trials. You know, uh, so you, if you do a little dive on her background, with little information that's left in history, uh, Chichiba is an empowering kind of uh, testimonial to the survival of voodoo or voodoo mm-hmm. in this country in a place that's kind of like pushed under the rug, you know, or turned into something that it wasn't. So this is in my personal opinion, just from, you know, diving deep into, you know, my studies and everything. Mm-hmm. I feel like that could be a good example if anybody needs an example as to what we're talking about, the reference. Uh, you guys do an awesome job, but just for millennials out there who are kind of in the back of the room, that need an example. Like myself, Pitsuba is a good one. Uh, just to add to that, uh, I digress. I'll get my mic for a minute because I just want to hear uh, this 
lesson today. Is, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm picking up a lot today. Well, all is a blessing. Well, all is a blessing. We certainly appreciate you. Um, Guinevere Reed, um, I'm actually reading a document um, gathered from, from academic circles on, on academia. Many of you are on academia. Uh, so it's not a book. Um, it, it's a school paper. Anthony X, um, the Congo and Congo Square does reference um, the Congolese to some degree, but you're sort of conflating Congo, Congo Square, and Palo Mayambe. And Palo Mayambe is really a Cuban ethnocultural demonstration that then spread north and, and spread out a little bit uh, into the um, uh, greater, I was going to say the greater Latin and Hispanic community, but really to the greater American uh, community, North America and, and South. Some people suggest that Palos and the use of Palos absolutely has a um, West African basis and root. Uh, there was a time I posted a different ethnic group on my Facebook page every day. And I posted um, some ancestral ceremonies from various tribes that not only kept their dead, and one particular ethnic group, the, the particular group escapes me right now, uh, kept their dead in pots. And they would wash the bones ceremonially every year and, and sort of wear them or parade them on their head. And we see this sort of death ceremony also in parts of Asia and parts mm-hmm. of, of India. And so from what I was taught about Palo Mayambe, um, it has its roots sort of in a, in a reforming of that tradition here in the West. So there are always, um, help me out, cousin, what you call the pot? Um, Ngangas, in, 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 in Ngangas, and, um, yeah, and other pots that they keep ceremonial polos in. Um I'm not sure how deep I should go into that, but um, it has been problematic. And particularly in places like Florida, uh, people are are robbing graveyards, digging people up, you know, to to acquire, you know, human skeletal parts. Uh, Some people even keep animals, you know, in their pots as a part of sort of this this tradition. Um, So I don't want people hearing what I'm saying and deciding you want to play around with that. Uh, without going officially, you know, into this tradition uh, and, and knowing what that's about. Uh, in some cases, there are uh, palos or sacred woods that are used um, in the pots, which also symbolically represent the bones of the dead. So uh, the Congo people do have a similar-like tradition, but when you talk about Palo Mayambe, uh, you're really talking about something that was birthed in, in Cuba. And the other thing about all of these things is like we always have to maintain a respect for our neighbors. There's been times that people... 
findings, though, that has allowed for the freedom of religion for the traditions. But we still want to maintain a level of dignity and respect in how we practice for our neighbors, all of that. So, you know, we just have to be careful of how we're doing it. We don't want to be putting it out there in such a negative way that it continues to turn off. You know, I I was down in Florida, and there was a time where all the articles were coming out, and things were on the news, animals just being thrown here and thrown there, and all of that. And that really is not, it's not the best way to go about the practice. It starts bringing negative eyes and light, mm-hmm. and then people will be doing everything possible to make your, your life miserable. Mm-hmm. So when you're doing these practices, do it in a way where it's respectful and honorable and not just throwing stuff everywhere and anywhere. Sacred space. Yes. I say it every day. The creation of sacred space is essential to everything that we do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And start going deeper into what, you know, it is an absolute disrespect and waste of an animal if you're not going to do the work of what the bull is for. If, you know, you prescribe this bull, and they say you got to do this or you got to do that. But yet, you go back to the same negative stuff that you did after the elbow was complete for you. You actually just wasted the animal. And then you'll have to answer for all these animals that you wasted when you get to heaven. I wouldn't want to do that. We all got things we got to answer to. So therefore, be mindful when you're going to get work done that you are truly willing to make the changes, your own sacrifice. You know, Ebola sacrifice first starts with you. And it starts with your thought. It starts with your mind. It starts with your actions, your words, your, your, your walking, all these things. It starts within you. And if you are not willing to make the necessary change, I don't care what tradition is being done for you. It's not going to work the way it's supposed to. And on top of that, you might have an adverse effect on you because you did not do the things you needed to do for the ego to really manifest itself and make the energetic changes and elevation that you that that it was supposed to be used for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And someone mentioned uh, uh, Nyasha, left hand and, and right hand magic. It's all left hand and right hand magic. And there's two ways to, to, to sort of look at that. In modern context, we've we've been taught that somehow left hand magic is negative. And right-hand magic is, is uh, positive. I was taught that left-hand magic was receptive and right-hand magic was projective. And that the idea of negativity or evil or, or wickedness or, or even which can be found in all religious traditions. I know people who work the Bible for, for, for evil. 
I know people who work Psalms to control people. I know people who work Psalms to, to harm other people. So just like my cousin said, you can find even in Islam, even in Judaism among our people, um, still a footprint and a presence of indigenous tradition. Uh, it still comes down to righteous intent and unrighteous intent. It, it still comes down to, am I seeking to do good? Am I seeking to improve? Am I seeking better? Am I seeking an answer? Or am I just seeking to harm, control, to defile, to desecrate? And mm-hmm. yeah, that, that affects us as all. That's how the uh, Hialeah Supreme Court case came to be. People were very upset about what was going on in, in Florida, whether rumored or not about the animals, the treatment of animals, the treatment of people. Um, I saw many of those articles. Um, some of them just crazy. Uh, I even remember uh, back in maybe 2005, 2006, people discarding pots, discarding mm-hmm. their, their shrine work, you know, out in the woods or out in the open spaces, allowing people who have no idea what our culture is about access to those things and, and, and access to determining for themselves what those things were. Uh, so I saw video back then of, of even police officers sort of going through that stuff and, you know, making references to, to Satanism and, and the devil and, and, and witchcraft. And, and uh, as my cousin said, the less informed audience doesn't know what else to think except that which is being presented to them by way of our demonstration. So we've got to be careful about how we stand up and represent those of us who are claiming to be doing obia, voodoo, hoodoo, conjure, mm-hmm. ifa. We've got to be very careful about how we are representing these traditions, how we are utilizing these traditions, and then what that reads to the next person who is learning these traditions by way of our demonstration. Correct. And also, you know, I've seen problems with people coming through airports and uh, where the airport workers just going and touching stuff and not having any regard for what energetically that uh, stuff they're touching is, you know? And even when we tell them, man, you might not want to touch that that way. That's a spiritual implement. And they don't care. Hey, yeah, yeah. And, and okay. And then, you know, whatever happens to them happens to them. You at least gave them a warning, you know? And then the same thing, you know, when, uh, what, what is it when, when people, the, the, the stuff gets sent into the country and there's certain people that have to look through that stuff? Uh, what, what is that? The um, oh, wow. I watch that TV program every day. Um, uh, customs. Customs. Right. <laughs> and then customs are looking through your stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and if they don't know what it is or they deem it, illegal for here, they're throwing away and destroying stuff that has very spiritual connotation. Mm-hmm. 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 We gotta look, we have to be mindful of what we're touching. We can't just touch people's stuff. You go into a house of Babalao, you go into a house of any type of spiritual like leader in the traditions, you don't go in just touching their stuff. You know, 
You give honor to what you have to give honor to, and then you step back and you leave that stuff alone because you don't have no idea of what kind of a level of protection is on the implement that a person has. And the same thing if somebody's throwing something out. It's not wise to go through the stuff. It's just not wise to go through the stuff. Leave it alone. This whole dude that talk about this is happening in your life because you touched something that somebody put on the ground. So now you're taking on all of the dirt, the, the, the negativity, the illness, the this, the that, of somebody else that wasn't supposed to be meant for you. But because you decided to go and touch it, now it's afflicting you. And a while back, there was a big problem with people who did not want, who did not believe in the in the practice, in the traditions, and they oh, they were out there going in people's houses with with like sledgehammer, whatever they had, hammers, sledgehammers or whatever, and smashing up people's uh, um and shrines and and different stuff, all because they had no respect for what they represented. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have to be mindful in our respect towards other people's practice and other people's, you know, uh, perspective of worship of God, of the Almighty. As well as our own demonstration that there are too many <laughs> among us right now who are claiming Orisha, who are claiming Loa, and... <laughs> There's no sacredness about that space. There's no sacredness about how you're interacting with those powers, whether you have them legitimately or not. I talk about the wearing of elakis. We were taught elakis were sacred and that you often kept them under your clothes. You didn't wear them out. But today in social media, you know, we got bodybuilders with their elakis on looking sexy out in public. You got women with their cleavage pushed up with the lakeys dripping down and it's a trend thing it's a pop cultural thing but as my cousin said the respect starts with us and if we're not showing respect to it we definitely can't expect the next person to respect did anybody did anybody see when they were doing that insurrection and all that other stuff there was a main dude that was a that was the head of one of those uh proud boys or whatever from he had a zone. From Puerto Rico, yeah. Ah, yes. He had a zone. Going in there and destroying that, not even knowing of the spiritual protection that even working in government, law enforcement, military provides you. People don't know those things. That's right. But they're out there and, and wearing a lekes going out there and, caught, and and doing and doing what, whatever it was that they were doing. That's right. Let me speak to one other thing too, because I saw something in there talking about the burying of people in uh, at least in Nigeria. When you own land and you own house, the elder then has its own room that they are buried in. They are buried in the house, and. Then there's uh, a, a kind of a, a thing of concrete that's built, almost like coffin, but they're built, they're, they're buried down. And then 
there's a hole there and you can do offerings to your ancestors right in the house. The good thing about it, you know, is like that then property stays in the family generations, you know. You, you don't have the ability to be selling uh, the, the property because your ancestor is right there. So just for people to know that that practice is an ancestral practice as well, where we bury our, our, our uh, ancestors on our property. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Many can't do that anymore, but yes, it is an ancestral practice that we bury our people either on a personal property, a house property, or at the very least, church property or a yeah, temple man. property that is not meant to go outside of, of being sold or anything like that. Living yeah. and growing up in Staten Island, New York, we had the Sandy Ground. Sandy Ground was one of the historical places for the street slaves that they were able to buy property. And one of the first churches over there was the Russell AME Zion Church. And the Russell AME Zion Church at one point broke up into two separate things because of a conflict. So while they were formulating the Standard Historical Society, I was really fortunate that they allowed me to kind of roll with them to survey land and to find historical things. And in that, we found one of the historical uh, uh, cemeteries. But people were building over that. Similar to what you find in Lower Manhattan. People don't realize that Lower Manhattan, by the World Trade Center, where that was, that was all at one time called Little Africa. That's right. And in that, there was burial grounds there of our ancestors that lived in that area, that territory, on the Wall Street. All that area was Little Africa at one point in time. Now you look at it, and all of our ancestral, whether cemeteries, all that built over top of Now we had to move, you know, move north, going up into Harlem right. and, and all of those areas. Right. And, and I want to speak to the south. Um, Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia. Um, we're still doing that where we still own land. Uh, my family has their own church. I won't say what town. It's a small town in Mississippi. Uh, they got their own church. Um, and they do bury some on, on the church grounds. But we still have the family burial grounds that is out in the, co- the community. And, and mm-hmm. I say the community because almost everybody in that town is related to me. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's community. Now, we also have the problem of industrialization. Now, my great-great-grandparents on my father's side now have a cotton field built over, over top of their cemetery. Only because, and this is just going to kill you, only because nobody in the family would cut the grass. Nobody would keep up the land So they they put a cotton field Over top of it So me, my cousin and I Might be you know of a certain age Compared to the, to the group And so we've seen families over the last 30, 40, 50 years Selling off their property Grandma leaves the property to, to the children 
for whatever reason, they sell it, lose it, don't pay the taxes on it. You know, so we're losing that sacred space, that, that opportunity to continue to bury and keep them within the confines of our community. And that is an indigenous practice, not just Africa, but all over the world, where it was best possible your family was kept with you. The family mm-hmm. was kept with you. I also wanted to speak to um, the Hogan Bokor question before I run out of time. Um, mm-hmm. It depends on where you're talking about. Now, in West Africa and in Haiti, Honan is the original word. Hogan is, is the creolized word for a practitioner, like a babalao, uh, if you will. Bokornan, Bokornan is the original word coming out of Togo, Benin, that region. They still have Bokornan. But if you go to Haiti, you hear Bokor, it has been given a devilish connotation. When you go to Haiti, when they say Bokor, they're talking about a, pra- a practitioner who operates outside the system, outside the rules, much like a witch, and is often con- consulted to do harmful, if, if not destructive things. So Bokor is really, and, Ho- and Honan or Hogan are original West African-based title concepts. But they have evolved in meaning in, in Haiti and, of course, here in uh, Louisiana. And we're quickly running out of time, so I'm going to respond to Guinevere Reed, and then we'll close out. Uh, Guinevere Reed asks, what about having altars, shrines, or ancestral sacred spaces outside on our property or in the woods versus inside? Um, if you can do that, I agree. I'm sure it's a great deal of my audience. Um, who lives in, in, in more rural areas that have an opportunity to do that. What's unique to New Orleans is it doesn't matter whose people it is, just like the second line, we all give it acknowledgement and honor. When, when the second line comes through, because some of y'all saw my second line video on TikTok and on Instagram, yeah, people come running out of their houses. People pull over and stop their car, and they join the procession. The second line follows the first line. The first line is often the casket, the, the family, the mourners, and they do what's called a dirge, which is really a uh, slow Christian-like uh, hymn. And then when we do the second line, that's when the brass bands and the drums, people start moving. That's the second line. And it's to honor and acknowledge the life and the spirit of the dead. We're happy that they're among the ancestors because we know the ancestors are still with us. Mm-hmm. So, so back to my original point, yes, we acknowledge the tombs of Marie Laveau. We acknowledge the tombs of those who came before. And people from all over the world come here to show acknowledge just to our cemetery. If they don't like anything else about our city, they, they like our cemetery and our death culture. And our death culture extends all the way back to, uh, uh, to a West African uh, uh, context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Cousin, if you want to close out, we can move forward. 
Oh, I give honor and praise to Olivamare, to the Orisha, to the Saab, to our ancestors that all of us are present here today. I pray that all of you will have a wonderful weekend, that the Father will bless each and every one of you with all all the blessings and sweetness of life, and that all good things will be manifested in your prayers. Your prayers will come to fruition. And we just ask that you'll continue to pray for us in your prayers as well to bring good energy for us in our lives as well. So, you know, have a wonderful weekend. My prayers and blessings to each and every one of you. All is a blessing. And yes, um, Guinevere Reed, you're describing my offer. Now, you didn't use that word, but you're describing my offer. And we celebrate Mayafa here in New Orleans, the first Saturday of July every year. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't do it last year. And though it's getting close, I'm not sure quite yet of the dynamics of Mayafa this year. Um, I typically mask, my cousin might not know this, I typically mask Egungun or Galede or some other ancestral masquerade during Mayafa. So often in the, in the Mayapa pictures every year, you don't see me because I'm completely covered, you know, in, in, in the ancestral uh, procession. So I appreciate, mm-hmm. I appreciate that, uh, Guinevere Reed. Uh, do they celebrate Mayapa or commemorate, not celebrate, commemorate Mayapa uh, in Oklahoma? Yes. And in fact, I've done, uh, I've done libations for opening ceremonies. I've done all the prayers and a lot of different things for Martha out here, giving honor to Olakun uh, as we do it, as Olakun is the holder of those who jumped over, were thrown over, who died in the in the on the portion and, and were over in the in their uh preservation the preservation of them, right? Mm-hmm. So when we do Martha, uh, I also include the prayers and offerings to to Yes. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And if your schedule allows, I look forward to meeting you here again on Monday at high noon, U.S. Central Standard Time. I'm appreciative for everyone, the audience, your active participation. Uh, I appreciate you all dialing that number, 845-277-9143, or getting your webcam together. And coming on and being an active part of the show, you all have a blessed and peaceful weekend, and I look forward to meeting you next time at high noon, U.S. Central Standard Time, here on Blog Talk Radio, StreamYard, Facebook, Twitter, wherever we can be found. All is a blessing. Congo Square. The Omus Indians, the Omus Indians prepared this place for us centuries before our arrival. A sacred spot where corn festivals were celebrated. The Omus Indians prepared this place for us centuries before our arrival. 
Congo Square, a sacred spot where corn festivals were celebrated. And as the colonizers came, our host, the Omus Indians, they pushed aside our host. The colonizers came and pushed aside our host and introduced us in chains. And by the late 1700s, we somehow, recognizing the sacredness of Le Place de Congo, we somehow, and the how of our somehow persuasive methodologies is not clear at this moment. The how is not clear. How our persuasive methodologies worked is not clear at this moment. But nevertheless, even as slaves, we crafted and created a space where we could be free to be we. And thusly, thusly we countered the sacrilegiousness of the French, giving great homage to our ancestors as well as giving praise and thanks to our red-blooded brothers and sisters. This is an oral libation toast to Congo Square, to Native Americans, to our ancestors who made a circle out of a square and gave us a way to stay ourselves, save ourselves from the transformatory ugliness of America, which refuses to recognize the spirituality of life which refuses to recognize the spirituality of life and celebrates death with crosses and crosses, double and triple crosses, the middle passage, the first cross, Christianity, the double cross, and capitalism, the ultimate triple coup de grace cross of our captivity. But the terror of crosses notwithstanding, we sang, we beat, we be, we was and is. Hail Congo Square. Congo, Congo Square. Our African gods have not been obliterated. They have merely retreated inside the beat of us. Inside the beat of us, our African gods have not been obliterated. They have merely retreated, retreated inside the beat of us until we are ready to release them into a world that we recreate, a world harrowed by the beat, be, beat, being, beating, being of black heart drum, heart beat, heart beat. Heart be at this place, at this place be heart be be we beating place in new world space, beating being in place in new world, preserving our ancient pace. Our dance is the God walk, our music the God talk. First thing we do. Let's get together, circle ourselves into community. No beginning, no end, connected together and singing 
ringing, singing in a ring. Second, let's be original, aboriginal. Be what we were before we became what we are. Be bambula dance. Be banza music. And sing song words which have no English translation. Third, let us remember. Let us remember never to forget even when we can't remember the specifics, we must retain the essentials. Let us remember never to forget. Even when we can't remember the specifics, we must retain the essentials. The bounce, the blood, flow, the feel, the spirit, grow, energy. Must retain and pass on the essential us-ness that others want to dissipate, whip out Hello. of us. Whoa! But no matter, no matter how much of us they prohibit, no matter how much of us they prohibit, deep inside us is us. Deep inside us is us. Remains us inside and needs only the beat to set us free. The beat to free us. It is morning, a sun day, a feel, a feel without shade, but dark, dark with the people black of us in various, various. Various shades eclipsing the sun with our elegance. We are centuries later now, and still this sacred ground calls us to remember, to beat, to be. We are centuries later now, and still this sacred ground calls us to remember to beat to be beat Congo Square be Congo Square Remember. Remember. 